You're listening to Escaping the Rat Race. I'm your host, Amy Leo, a singer, songwriter, and mental health educator. And our show is all about questioning the status quo and pushing the boundaries into what's possible for human beings and not probable. So tune in and get ready to escape the rat race, not only the monotonous nine to five work grind, but also that incessant internal mental chatter that prevents most of us humans from experiencing more joy, peace, clarity, and freedom. On today's call, we're speaking with Michelle Despain, who shares with us her experience with creative pursuits, building a business online, and of course, being a late bloomer, to which she has now founded LateBloomerRevolution.com. Stay tuned because the ending has a bit of a surprise in it as this episode kind of goes full circle from hope, excitement, to then fear and disappointment, to then the possibilities that actually abound. Let's get started. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. My name is Amy Leo from ReviveYourSanity.com, and today I'm joined by Michelle. She's in Arizona. I'm in Spain, and I love technology. Michelle is a prima blog arena and a fearless leader at the LateBloomerRevolution.com, and she's just an absolute delight in her presence, and I'm really excited for her to be on the show and share her story. So with that being said, Michelle, if you could share a little bit of your personal background, uh, how much you feel comfortable with, and then your journey as as a creative person and, and what that's looked like and all the evolutions it's maybe taken for you. Right. It's, it's occurred in many evolutions. I'm a, a huge fan of reinvention. And thank you so much for having me today, Amy, and inviting me to share my story. Uh, let's see, if we go back to the very beginning, I was um, born in New York, and I had dreams of being um, an actress and a, a singer when I grew up. And um, I taught myself how to play guitar when I was eight. I was acting out musicals in my grandmother's basement. And uh, we moved to Texas around that time. And that, that felt like a huge shift for me in my life, that I was kind of... Um, uh, taken away from like those magical childhood roots that I experienced. And I, I continue to nurture my love for the theater in, in Houston and even continued to um, pursue acting in, in college. And I have a degree in theater, but that's when fear first snuck in, not, not snuck in, uh, more like barged in for the first time in a big way. And I felt scared about um, trying to make a living as an artist. I, I really uh, did, did not have any bohemian streak in me whatsoever. So after graduating from college in, in New York City, I had so many friends um, that were perfectly fine living five to a hovel in Brooklyn. This was before Brooklyn was cool. Like now Brooklyn is in a renaissance and I really should have invested in real estate in Brooklyn back in the day. But, 
but I didn't, and I didn't want to wait tables and, and audition all day, so I, I went back to Texas with my tail between my legs and um, went into education instead, which was another genuine passion of mine. I love working with children, and um, I love sharing the arts with children, so I I, um, I got my Montessori certification, and then I designed a performing and visual arts curriculum that I taught as an independent contractor in Montessori schools and private schools, and that was a, a great period of my life that lasted for 16 years. And then 2008 happened. Dun, dun, dun. I'm sure we can all relate to the financial pressures of 2008, and since my art school was my my own business, I was self-employed at that time, and so many people were getting laid off from their jobs. The arts are always the first to be cut out of the schools. So, um, so I made a career shift, and I I went into educational publishing as a salesperson, and I worked in corporate America for five years, and. At first, it was the Camelot of corporate America. We had the most incredible leadership. Um, most of us, 99% of us were former educators. So we, our hearts were truly invested in education first. And we, had, we were paid really well. We had all the great perks. And then I got to work with fellow teachers all day. So it was really beautiful until another dun, dun, dun. There was a reorganization and they started bringing in people from, I don't know if I can mention the names of the ugly corporations, but non-educators <laughs> were brought in to lead our division and everybody was unhappy, unhappy. And it was like the ending scene of Camelot where there's a war and King Arthur is unhappy and his spirit has been broken. And so people started fleeing and they started fleeing to uh, competitors in the industry. But I had just turned 40. How old was I at the time? I was about to turn 43. And um, I felt some big shifts when I turned 40 about feeling not feeling regrets yet, but being scared that I may feel regrets later on in my life since I was now gasp middle-aged. I don't feel middle-aged, but technically I am. I'm half of my grandmother's age. Um, so, um, so I decided to, oh, and then I had also heard about, I heard a talk about, uh, someone had mentioned the um the book the top five regrets of the dying and the num it was uh, written by Bronnie Ware who was a hospice nurse I can't remember if she's in Australia or New Zealand but she had interviewed people on their deathbeds asking them what regrets they had in life and the number one regret was that I wish that I hadn't done what others expected of me and instead followed my 
heart followed my true calling. And so another dream that I had when I was a little girl was to be a writer. When I was eight years old and teaching myself how to play guitar, I was also writing plays and producing them in my garage and writing stories and, and books that I would give away to friends and family and classmates would even ask me to write books for them as early as first grade. And so I decided to pursue that dream. I had been a hobby blogger for about two and a half years at that point. And I was never happier than when I was writing. So I decided to do something really scary and uh, invest the money that I had been able to save in my corporate America job and um, try to make a living as a writer. And I, that's when I started the late bloomer revolution.com. And I think the name is self-explanatory here. I was 43 years old <laughs> in the midst of a career change that uh, is very, um, risky and scary on so many different levels and I'll be quiet now because I feel like I'm going on and on and on and on and on which... oh but you're not <laughs> no 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 <laughs> no I, I I have also uh, picked up snippets from the book I haven't read the whole book but there's something about that knowledge of not having regrets myself that that also fueled me in making some what society or what my mother, <laughs> hi mom, if you're listening, what my mother <laughs> thought was very risky, you know, decisions, dropping out of medical school and then quitting my social work uh, day job and, and all these different things. Right. You know, and I have had the experience to serve a lot of older people. And I'm very, very grateful for that. People that are retired, 65, 70, uh, uh, older, older than you, Michelle, but still in that late blooming uh, revolution, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, late, late bloomers. Yes, yes, yes. Still never too late. <laughs> and, you know, I can't tell you how many times, Michelle, that I've sat down with a client and I'll be talking about, oh, I just came from Ireland. And they'll be like, oh, so-and-so and I always wanted to go to Ireland, but mm. now I guess we'll never get there. You know, either she's too sick or mm. her husband's passed away or it's physically unable. And I remember having a conversation with my mom, you know, again, and it's really interesting to me, Michelle, how <laughs> society likes to create these, we like to create these norms, right? These cultural norms and all these ideas about the right and wrong way to live and and all of it's just absolutely malarkey and made up, you know, and, and I, the more that I speak with individuals and interview people such as yourself, Michelle, I really see that everyone's path is really uniquely set for them and that there really are no limits except for people thinking that there are limits. Mm -hmm. And I've really seen that. And I wonder if you can speak to that as you've seen it, have, have you uncovered kind of your relationship to thinking or cultural rules that you kind of no longer see as the be all to end all. Yes. I wish I had had that insight in my twenties, although I was kind of doing brave things in my twenties too. At 28, I went through a divorce and my business really hadn't gotten off the ground yet and was not making, I was not making enough money to, 
sustain me. And everyone just assumed that I would either move back to Houston to be closer to family or, or go find a quote unquote real job, which at the time made me laugh because I was one of the few people I knew that was actually utilizing my degree. I had a degree in theater and I was teaching theater and music to young children. But um, I made it, I made it happen. Like during one of the most painful periods of my life, I made it happen. I pounded the pavement and I was able to generate enough income to live well as a teacher. Um, but I still had a lot of mental uh, blocks and, and, and fears, especially in my 30s. I think when you're approaching 40, you start to really get hit by the societal messages of, do you have enough money in your retirement account? <laughs> and <laughs> I was thinking, no, as a teacher, I don't have enough money in my retirement account. Um, and so I think when I had the choice, when the economy tanked, I may, I ran into the the arms of 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 corporate America because I felt like they could take care of me and they did and I'm very grateful. I don't want to bash my experience there because like I said when I joined that company it I was so well taken care of on so many different levels and I I'll, I'm incredibly appreciative of that time in my life and and the people in my life that I met at that time who were still in my life, but um, I remember not feeling like I was ready to take another big risk, and that was just easier at the time to um, to do what others expected of me. And then something beautiful happened in my 40s where I just started to slowly surrender and let go of the fear and the mindset. I don't know if it's one thing in particular. I remember listening to the audio book, feel the fear and do it anyway, in the car in my early 40s. Um, and I remember the, the, the biggest takeaway from that book was that if your greatest fear happens, if it materializes, of course our greatest fears rarely materialize, but should it materialize, I can handle it. I've handled sticky situations in the past. Um, I've made it happen in the past and I will make it happen again. And this is probably exceptionally morbid, but the societal view on retirement and will I have enough money? Um, <laughs> I lost a cousin to a drunk driver at the age of, 25. He's not, he'll, he of course will never see retirement. It didn't matter if he had a 401k or not. And I'm not going to, I want to prepare for the future as best as I can financially, but none of us know what's going to happen. And I think it's more important to take calculated risks and really carpe diem and, and seize the moment. Yes. Uh, I'm just going to jump in here, Michelle. I, I realized I didn't finish telling the story about um, when I was talking with my mom and, and she had this thought of, uh, well, these are, you know, your prime earning years and you can travel when you're retired. And, and I said, mom, I may not make it to then. Mm -hmm. Again, not to be more, but to be realistic about it. And I agree that it's not that um, I'm saying 
spend everything you have. And you know, if that, if that feels good to you and you want to do it, go ahead. <laughs> but I'm, not, I'm not ever about giving prescriptions on the show with how, you know, people should or shouldn't live, but there's right. a beautiful piece that you're speaking with that I think is aligned and that's within every human being. And that's this inner resilience and resourcefulness, this inner connection to peace and love. And it's so beautiful and true what you said about knowing you know, there was a difference in your resonance when you're speaking. It was like, I know that I'll be able to deal with whatever comes my way. Mm-hmm. You know? And for me, there's like these two voices. <laughs> I have my kind of inspired gut instinctual voice. And then the rest of the thought committee gets in on it with their opinions, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it will be like a rat on a gerbil wheel if I let that. So the more that I've seen that, you know, there's no truth in that, that the computer is just running its analytics and that's what it's meant to do. But Mm -hmm. that actually has no correlation to what's going to happen in the future. And Mm -hmm. it actually says nothing about my worth as a human being or what I'm doing right now. You know, I, I really also, this piece I think is huge, Michelle, of what you're talking about, you know, with, Uh, kind of this, again, cultural idea of security. And my dad comes from this, you know, old, what I would call (laughs) old school model of thinking where, you know, in his generation, what he did is he was taught to get a good job and then he would work for the company for 40 years and then they would take care of him with right. pension and this health insurance. But the truth is, Michelle, like I said, I've spoken with thousands and thousands of retirees. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times a company will decide, oh, we're not going to cover your health insurance anymore. Right. Or we're not going to give you your pension. So there's this beautiful mm-hmm. piece that, that you really highlighted in a beautiful way of security within you know, mm-hmm. that, that the security really does come from within and that money is certainly a logistic. It's something that is helpful for sure. I'm not saying that it isn't, but, but again, when someone begins to see that for themselves, that they're always okay, it's a game changer as, as you've, as you've shared. Right. Wow. Thank you for making me sound much more profound than I really am. Security from within. I love that. <laughs> I, I'm just reframing what I'm hearing, Michelle. That's it. That's it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So let's see. Where can we go now? Oh, this is always so fun. Let's see. So, okay, let's take it to today, present, present today. Yes. What do you love most about what you're doing and what you've learned? And then consequently, uh, on the flip side, what are your biggest challenges as a business owner? Well, what I love, what I love to do most is write. When I'm feeling my most frazzled and uh, not feeling myself, feeling out of sorts, the way I can get back to me is to write, whether that's a blog post or I'm an avid journaler. I like to combine meditation with journaling and gain keen insights through that. But that's what makes me happiest. Um, I've learned so much in the past two and a half years because my business is solely online. I write, I've, I've written and published a book that I sell and an e-course and another e-course in the works um, that I deliver virtually. So I am not a digital native. I am a digital immigrant. I did not grow up with computers. (laughs) And 
So uh, there was a huge learning curve for me going into this, but I am happy to announce that I now have the skill set of a millennial because I just had to dive in and learn most everything myself. Of course, I had to hire web developers to develop the web website, but um, sometimes when little things break, I can, I've actually learned how to cut and paste code when needed. <laughs> There's not a developer who's available right away. Um, More skill than I have, Michelle. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know I always feel good about myself when I watch friends that are in their late 20s or early 30s and I know how to do things. Um, but I am, you know, as an educator, uh, it's lifelong learning is one of my greatest um, aspirations for my life. So I've, I've actually liked that part, having to dive in and I'm a kinesthetic learner. So I like to, to teach, uh, teach myself how to learn new things. And, and so I've done all these things and that's fabulous. Um, the biggest challenge is trying to break through the noise online. It's, 2016 affords us with such great opportunities that we can you know, put up a virtual shop and, um, and talk to people around the world. And I'm tickled that I have followers in so many countries around the world. And every time I see someone from Australia sign up or someone from Portugal, which is where my family is from, it just... I just feel amazed that I'm talking to people across the ocean. But having said that, it's, it's really challenging to, and I don't know how many people are honest about this online, but uh, I'm going to just take a deep breath and say it. It's really challenging to make a living through an online business. So, um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Well, no, I'm really, really glad for your authenticity about that. And, and that's the truth that as I have, have experienced, you know, because we're all individuals, you know, some things will work in certain ways for other people. Like if there's a how-to program, that can be really useful. You can get a lot of great ideas. Mm -hmm. but, but the thing is, is that that's not going to work for everybody. You know, it's not a one size fits all kind of, kind of model. And I have had colleagues or friends or fellow business owners that, you know, get really, really down on themselves about it. And they're, they're like, I've done the best I could. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, you know, Mary Ann just made, you know, a million and change last year. And she's kind of doing the same thing, but in a different way. And what's going on, you know, <laughs> all of this, you know. <laughs> So there's definitely this beautiful piece of, again, people just kind of mm, being kind with their own process. And I, right. from a place of someone that was really unkind to myself. <laughs> so I know that that doesn't seem like an easy thing, especially when you're taking the thinking in your head to be true. And I talk right. a lot on the show about insecure thinking and how it's really natural and human, but that perhaps that isn't where you're going to make your best decisions, <laughs> create right. your content from, you know, decide to pull the plug on something, you know, probably when it's feeling tight and constricted, um, it might be, you know, best to let it pass because the truth is it always passes. It right. always passes. It feels like hell when you're going through it and that the sun's never going to shine again, but it always does. Right. You know? I don't know if I'm actually, I'm, 
I'm pretty proud of myself the way I'm handling. Uh, I don't. I don't know if it's really insecure thinking that I'm grappling with. It's the age-old startup issue running out of funding mm. that I'm dealing with. So I haven't let go of my dream. It's still there, but it's morphing into something new. And I could have gotten scared again, like I did at 38, and um, run off to another corporate job. I mean, that might still happen if it's truly a dream job that I'm passionate about, but I'm kind of reinventing myself again, um, looking for writing jobs outside of my website, whether it be copywriting or generating content for other people's websites. Using my gifts and talents in the in the writing arena instead of uh, running off and doing something that's the opposite of that because it's quote unquote more practical or it's not as scary um, so that's where I'm at right now now that's who that feels very vulnerable admitting that but yeah but this is real life Michelle and I appreciate that I mean logistics are real I mean <laughs> logistics are something that we all have to deal with and and businesses kind of have a life of their own you know it's like people are calling you've got 10 clients lined up one month and then the next month it's like what happened I'm still doing the same thing right, <laughs> no right. To five or you know no one has called this month and it's kind of like this natural ebb and flow that mirrors life I mean this is logistical and what, what I do right find helpful is again and when people don't have a lot on that Michelle kind of like what I'm hearing I hear you saying it really simply like well maybe I will get a job and if it's an aligned then yeah of course it's common sense mm -hmm. you're letting your your common sense lead you and and not not the fear bubble stuff you know I'm not getting that from you which I really appreciate on the show and sharing that yeah logistics are are real you know there's there's logistics, but then again, there's the talking ourselves in and out of things that comes from that really sticky, insecure, fearful place. Like a story that came up when you, when you were sharing is I was at a wedding this past summer and there was a guy who lived in, who lives in Brooklyn. He's in Bushwick, which I had a good chuckle about how that's, you know, <laughs> that neighborhood's on the rise, but anyway. <laughs> New York is changing all the time, but uh, neither here nor there. And it was really interesting because he's, you know, when you talk to someone, and they're t talking about what they truly are passionate about. There's an energy there. There's lights that go off in their eyes. And I could see so clearly, like, this man is a really great screenwriter. I, could t I didn't have to read any of his work to know that. He was so passionate about wanting to be a screenwriter. But ironically, he wasn't letting himself screenwrite anymore. And he wasn't even attempting to make money from it anymore. Because mm -hmm. he said, well, you know, it's like I work on this for, you know, one year, two year, three years, and mm -hmm. then so-and-so doesn't read it and it just goes into the trash. So there mm -hmm. was an element of it being really, really personal. Mm -hmm. And like the truth is the system's really neutral. And in creative careers, people have a lot of opinions of what's right or wrong, but the people that have stuck with their innovative view often break through again, eventually mm -hmm. in their own time. And what I also find interesting though is like, okay, so he was, he held it so close. It was so loaded for him. There was so mm -hmm. much on it about screenwriting that he wasn't right. making money. But you know where he was making money, Michelle? He was making money as an artist, an actual painter and doing woodwork. 
So oh. I'm still making money from creative pursuits. <laughs> Isn't this amazing? Yeah, it is amazing. So his, <laughs> his potential is infinite. And again, that's the thing that we don't know. So often when I talk to people that have an idea of being a business owner or being an actress or being a creative or being a writer, you know, any of these or singer for myself, mm -hmm. I'll speak for myself. <laughs> I'll speak for myself. Yes, yes. You know, I used to think like, well, if I don't quote unquote make it, then I'm a failure. And I've got to make it this one way that looks this one way with radio play. And the truth is that's just not true. Right. We, we have so many creative options that even if we don't see them now, I mean, who knows? Who knows what it will morph into? So I'm excited to keep hearing you know, the story unfold, Michelle. That, um, that triggers a story that I was just talking about with my mother this morning in the car on the way I'm actually talking to you from this great collaborative co-working space in Phoenix, Arizona called Cahoots. I want to plug them because they're awesome. You were talking about how he let the artist let go of art, how he saw it, and he was able to make a living as a creative in a, in a different way. I think that's really important. So when I started my blog, I had let go of, in my late 30s, I had written a few children's books, submitted them to probably a dozen literary agents, and I was rejected by all of them. So then I thought, okay, I need to pivot. This, there's this new thing called blogging. I love the movie Julie and Julia, and I'm sure that will happen to me. <laughs> so I started my blog thinking that I could pursue my dream as a writer in, in a different way. And so that's what I've been doing now since 2010. And, um, and recently it's become um, more of a challenge financially than I thought it would be when I, I took the leap. So uh, interestingly, this will give everyone goosebumps, hopefully. I pitched a big literary agent. I don't want to mention his name, but he represents a, a huge author whose book was turned into an Oscar-nominated film. And I pitched this agent uh, via email, the idea for my book, thinking, eh, it's a long shot, but I'm going to do it because I'll live with regrets if I don't do it. Well, he loved my pitch and he wants to see a book proposal. So wouldn't it be funny and amazing and wondrous, Amy, if <laughs> this book is picked up and that's my lucky break. I've come full circle, traditional, non-traditional, traditional, but I think the important takeaway there is that I never let go of the dream and I was willing to um, explore it from, from different angles. And now the, the interesting part about the conversation was with my mother was I have so little um, attachment to it at this point. Of course, I would love for him to pick it up, but the way I'm approaching it now, um, my mom commented that I'm approaching it more like, uh, like, like work now, instead of it just being my hobby or, um, I don't know. I feel, I feel I've taken the emotion out of it and I'm still producing my best, the best art that I can, but I have it scheduled for two hours every day. I work on this book proposal. Um, just like I'd be, I have some freelance clients now. So just like I have my freelance clients scheduled into my calendar, I have my book proposal scheduled into my calendar. And that's very freeing to create with no attachment and just to completely surrender 
surrender the artistic process to to whatever maybe to the to the literary agent gods <laughs> yes, yes that's yeah, I kind of want to just end on that because it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful and it's true. And again, just, just putting like a little bow on it, you know, again, to repeat what you and I have been talking about pretty much the whole time, even before the call is just, I really invite listeners to question what they think they know. And I've said this before on the show, but it's so true. Our brains are machinery. They are there to run analysis and to make predictions. But the truth is my brain predictions usually have absolutely nothing to do with the future. And all that we have is the moment that we're in. And what I love about Michelle's story and what she's sharing is that she's just giving her all in the moments that she's writing. And that's all that we can do. And we take steps that make sense from there. But to really kind of scale down, it's okay to have these big visions. I mean, I have them too. But sometimes, you know, thinking that our worth is tied up in achieving those goals can feel really heavy. And then in my case, it paralyzed me from actually making music. Mm -hmm. So I just encourage folks to just question what they think they know and examine these beliefs that uh, are, are assumptions that they may not even realize <laughs> that they've been operating under. Oh, well, with that, Michelle, uh, where can people find you? To, to work with you or to get more information about your programs? People can find me at the latebloomerrevolution.com. And if you click the menu item at the top, the blog, that's where all my social media buttons are. And so, but the, the mothership is the latebloomerrevolution.com. Awesome. And I will say that Michelle's site is one of the best sites I honestly have ever seen, really. I mean, the artwork and the clarity on that and the resources are excellent. So please check her out. Really, really, it's worth it. I promise she's in this beautiful yellow dress and it's just, it's just beautiful and aesthetic. I really love your website. Thank you website so <laughs> much. I'd like to, since I'm plugging people that I care about, uh, Rebecca Pollock who lives in Brooklyn is the designer for that site. And she really, uh, I'm very specific about my visions and she was so patient with me and, and brought that vision to life. And then the photo, the photograph was taken. That was actually a surprise photography shoot. I don't like having my picture taken, but my friend Sam breach from San Francisco showed up and surprised me with that. So she, um, Rebecca Pollock and Sam Bridge, like I cannot, I'd love to promote people that whose work I love. So there you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, great. Well, thank you, Michelle, so much. I definitely let's keep in touch because I am curious to see where both of our roads lead, <laughs> especially yours. <laughs> so lovely talking with you. I feel like we're soul sisters and I, I hope to uh, meet you at some point in the, in person. Yes, me too. Me too, Michelle. Thank you so much and have a great rest of your week. You too. Take care. Bye. So it is about that time. Cue the drum roll, Kelly, for another one of our real stories. Possibilities Today's real story involves the brains of nuns. So hopefully we've piqued your curiosity here. So since 1994, Dr. David Bennett and his team have collected data on hundreds of brains. What they have found so far is truly astounding. 
that having brain tissue that is riddled with structural damage normally caused by Alzheimer's doesn't necessarily mean a person will experience cognitive problems. This means some participants of a study that they ran analyzing the brains of nuns were living with full-blown Alzheimer's pathology but didn't experience cognitive symptoms when they were alive. So what is going on here? Parts of the brain that were not damaged compensated and took over for the parts that were. The powers and the possibilities of the mind continue to astound me. In summary, today's real story is that the brains of nuns looked damaged post-mortem but showed no symptoms of dementia when alive. If you want to learn more about this and all other kinds of brain science and experiments, I highly recommend David Eagleman's book, The Brain, The Story of You, or you can also Google for this particular study, Religious Orders Study, Rush University, and I'll post that in the show notes. Once again, Myself and the rest of the team at Revive Your Sanity want to thank you so much for listening. To get connected and get in the best psychological shape of your life, that is our mission. Head on over to reviveyoursanity.com to learn more about what it is that we do and the programs and results that people have experienced in real time from attending those experiential learning programs. You can also find this podcast series and subscribe on either iTunes or YouTube by typing in the search engine, Escaping the Rat Race with Amy Leo. Thank you so much. Until next time, keep rocking. Today's podcast was brought to you through a collaborative effort. I especially want to thank our podcast producer, Kelly Munstrad. Kelly can be reached for anything technology, whether it's audio needs you have or visual needs. He also does music production, which is super exciting, especially when folks that are aspiring to be singers step into the studio the first time and actually have something to take home with them. For me, I remember it was an extremely memorable and valuable experience. So you can reach Kelly and find Kelly at our website, reviveyoursanity.com, or reach out to him directly. His email address is kelly k-e-l-l-y dot munsrud m-o-n-s-r-u-d at gmail.com so again that's kelly dot at gmail.com big thanks to everyone at our revive your sanity team meg jean chris until next time everybody keep rocking